HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by 100 Bogart Street. Do you need a conference room for your next meeting? Learn more by visiting 100bogart.com. Okay, so I'm going to share my ultimate kitchen joy. It is making homemade mayonnaise in under two minutes. The key to this is having a jar that has the perfect size opening to insert an immersion blender. The ingredients are one egg, the juice of half a lemon, a garlic clove, Dijon mustard, and canola oil. And here we go. So the reason that this works to begin with is because all the ingredients other than the oil sink to the bottom of the jar and the fact that you're using an immersion blender that fits perfectly and kind of encapsulates those ingredients first is that the oil is able to slowly be incorporated to the other ingredients. Since finding the two-minute mayo recipe on Serious Eats, that jar of garlicky aioli has been a permanent fixture in my refrigerator, especially right now when peak summer tomato sandwiches are a nearly daily occurrence. Have you ever found a recipe, ingredient, kitchen tool, or cookbook that has changed the way your whole kitchen functions? Here at HRN, we're obsessed with these joyous discoveries, so we're dedicating our season four finale to them. I'm Kat Johnson, and this is Meat and Three. Meat and Three. Meat and Three. Meat and Three. One meat, three sides. Food, news, and storytelling. A square meal for your ears. Meat and Three. We still have one more glorious month of summer left, which means CSA boxes are looking beautiful and bountiful. Here's Aaliyah Papes with a story about how her household makes the most of their weekly produce. So, um, what is a CSA? I I don't know. It's a community share agriculture. Crop share something. I didn't know what the A stand for. Community supported agriculture. (laughs) I sat down with my three roommates to talk about my kitchen joy. Community supported agriculture, or the CSA, sometimes also called a farm share. You pay a lump sum to a farm up front at the beginning of the season, and every week you pick up a bunch of produce, your CSA share, from the farm or a pickup spot near you. It's a great way to support farmers because then they make money at the beginning of the season. You're also buying everything they grow, not just picking and choosing your favorites. My name is Teddy, 
Uh, I'm Aaliyah's brother, the intern's brother. I'm Madeline. I am Aaliyah's roommate and also her brother's wife. Uh, my name's Doug. Aaliyah is basically my sister. <laughs> Our families are very close. The four of us split a double share of veggies and a single share of fruit from the Flatbush CSA, which comes from a family farm in Long Island. What was in last week's share? Uh, beets, potatoes, squ- some kind of squash, tomatoes, corn, currants, lettuce, peaches, nectarines, cucumbers, yeah. lots of celery. I'm very excited about the celery. <laughs> oh yeah, what are you doing with lettuce. the celery tonight? I'm making a simple syrup for a gin cocktail with the celery, and I also found a recipe for a celery soup that's going to use up the celery and the potatoes and some of that dill that we still have hanging out in there. (laughs) Madeline and I both love that the CSA is a fun way to try new dishes. Kind of like a meal kit service, but totally free form without a recipe or a guide. Not everyone shares our enthusiasm, though. So, Doug, does the CSA bring you joy? Um, no, it brings me stress. Some of the problems... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that I foresee happening from from being a part of a CSA is food rotting in the fridge, being wasteful with things that you buy, eating food that you don't like, um, and taking up a lot of fridge real estate, frankly. I think a lot of people feel the same way Doug does. So while sharing my CSA joy, I also want to make it a little easier for anyone listening to jump into a CSA by filling you in on how we keep from wasting food. We came up with five big tips for using up everything in your CSA. First, sort and prep right away when you get home. Here are Teddy and Madeline, who usually bring home the veggies every Wednesday. I do the fridge last because that's the worst. There are varying approaches, right? I start with the fridge because I know that it's going to be the biggest trial. But like taking out everything that's like, this needs to be consumed before we eat any of the new things. And also... Aaliyah, you a couple weeks ago washed and chopped a whole bunch of lettuce before doing anything else, and I was very inspired by that. So I did that this week because I was like, yeah, because then the lettuce is just ready. Like, Doug can put it on a sandwich. Teddy can make a salad. It's like already – there isn't a lot of prep work. Our second tip, don't be afraid to just cook it. You don't always have to put it into a full dish. If we've got a bunch of beets, I'll just roast them all so that they can go in a sandwich or a salad anytime. If you do go with a dish, though, get ready to substitute and experiment. If your favorite recipe uses spinach, toss in Swiss chard and turnip greens instead. And use as much CSA produce as you can. I think when we made falafel, I I didn't cook it. You guys cooked it, but it was really good. (laughs) You made the uh, tzatziki. And I think specifically the reason you guys made it was because we had a lot of leftover dill. Yeah, it was the dill and the cucumbers for the tzatziki. And then in the falafel, it was... Parsley. We had parsley. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Which is important in fall. Mm-hmm. And, and garlic. Yeah, oh, maybe yeah. even onion, or was that... Uh-huh, I yeah. think so. That was, that was a good one. That was a great meal. Sometimes our experiments also fail, though, like the time I made squash soup that was just bad. Other times there are parts of the plants that aren't quite edible. That's why we need tip three, broth and compost. We have a broth bin in the freezer where, like, all clean... Like offcuts from veggies and onion skins and stuff like that um, go in there. And then whenever the broth bin is full, just boil it for a little while and make some vegetable tea. 
Anything that's already too far gone for broth, that's too dirty, or that has a really strong or bitter flavor, we put into another bin in the freezer for compost. On Saturday mornings, I put the compost containers into my backpack, bike through Prospect Park to Grand Army Plaza, and drop off the compost at the Green Market. Sometimes they also collect compost at our local community garden and a couple other places in the neighborhood. I have some hesitation about like localvorism and stuff like that, but knowing that things are in season and not just knowing that they're local, like this is a farm nearby, like these vegetables are growing here because they can and they do. I enjoy feeling connected to the food that I'm eating in general. So it's cool to know a little bit about the humans who are growing the food that we're going to eat. Well, even for it to be possible to know about the humans who are growing your food. Yeah, like I couldn't know about the farmer who, at or the grain trader at Cargill who sold me the soy the soybeans that fed my cow or something. So I like that it's a way to interact with members of our community that we would otherwise never know. I think that's my favorite thing about it. That brings me to my last tip. Cook and eat your CSA with friends. It's more fun, you end up trying out different recipes, and it's a lot easier than trying to eat all the food by yourself or with one other person. So find some friends, support some farmers, and try out some new food. I hope it brings you joy. While some home cooks love the improvisation that's required with the CSA box, others are happiest when they stick to tried and true recipes. Here's H. Conley on one of her all-time favorite homemade ingredients. Many of us on the HRN team have more than one food-related job. In my case, I make cheese as well as radio. When we discussed this episode, I started thinking about how everyone here, who spends so much time immersed in food, still manages to find joy in their kitchens. So I decided to explore the food we make just for the joy of it. Maybe it would be easier to just buy it in a store Maybe most people consider making it too much work or too messy, but this is the food that's worth the work and worth the wait. On a recent episode of Life's a Banquet, co-host Brett and Scott talked about making Ladyfingers, a challenging, easily ruined dessert, something most people buy at a bakery. But for him, the process is part of the point. It's worth the time and effort to make something so extravagantly unnecessary and delicious. All my friends have specific foods they make purely because it makes them happy. Whether it's beer, pickles, granola, or marmalade, it's something they can revisit, experiment with, and make their own. For me, that food is ricotta. And you'd think that after two years of 10-hour days, elbow-deep in cheddar curd, that cheese would start to lose a bit of its charm. The production floor at work is hot and loud, there's music blasting but barely audible over the hammering of the pasteurizer, the dull roar of the various pumps and hot sets, the banging of someone breaking cheese that pressed overnight out of its metal hoop on a metal table, the whoosh of the vacuum sealer, the irregular thumping of the curd mill, and the shouting of all the cheesemakers. I come home sticky with salt on my arms and whey splattered on my glasses, My arms limp from flipping curd loaves and carrying 60-pound blocks. My fridge is so overstocked with free cheese that almost every meal I make has to incorporate some in order to keep it from piling up. I offload it onto friends and family and make every party a wine and cheese night. 
My life is so bountifully packed with cheese that I'm shocked I'm not bored of it. And yet, on my brief weekend, after my 4.30 a.m. shift on Saturday and before my 2 a.m. shift on Monday, I make ricotta. I first made it while working in the Hawthorne Valley Farm Creamery in the Hudson Valley. Now, in my apartment far away from the cows, I can almost smell the manure. It's quiet and tranquil, and there's no rush. I fill my grandma's old soup pot with raw milk from work, cream, and salt, and bring it to a low simmer while occasionally stirring. Add some white vinegar and watch it separate. Once the curds have solidified, I pour them into a strainer with cheesecloth laid over it and a yogurt container underneath to catch the whey. I add a little salt and taste it before tying the cheesecloth to the faucet to drain. At that point, it is light and fluffy and so sweet that it's almost a mousse. I never drain it much more than an hour because I have zero patience. It's still warm and creamy and irresistible. That's what all the effort is for. I think one of the reasons I'm still so enamored with cheese is that for most of my life, it was something to be bought, not to be made. It was a mystery to me how milk could become solid. Even now, I'm perpetually awed by the chemistry of cheese making. That these processes have existed for so long, that there are so many different things that milk has to offer, and that I have the ability to create them. We'll be right back with more Kitchen Joys right after this break. This episode was brought to you by 100 Bogart, a new building in Bushwick, Brooklyn, with meeting and event spaces available for on-demand booking. Looking for the next perfect outdoor location for your next gathering? Host your next event at 100 Bogart's impressive rooftop, just steps away from the Morgan L stop. It's one of the largest and tallest roof spaces in Bushwick, boasting 360-degree views of Brooklyn, Manhattan, and Queens. 100 Bogart's rooftop is available for your next networking event, fundraiser, special performance, or photo shoot. There's approximately 5,000 square feet, ample space for up to 100 guests. For more information on hosting an event at 100 Bogart's rooftop, email info at 100bogart.com or call 718-362-3539. Welcome back to Meet in Three. Are you feeling happy yet? For our next story, Oscar Simone sets out to make his home cooking experiences mirror the pristine, precise world of restaurant kitchens. This past week, I set out on a journey to become a better home chef. I wanted to learn how to manage my kitchen messes and avoid being confronted with that pile of dishes at the end of a meal. So I met up with an expert and soon realized that there's a whole lot more to cleaning than just cleaning. I'm going to have to change the way that I cook. My name is Gabe McMacken. I am the chef and owner of uh, The Finch in Clinton Hill, Brooklyn. I'm also the chef and culinary director of Troutbeck in Amenia, New York. The Finch is a special place. The plates are stunning, the food is simple, delicious, and each ingredient always finds a way to speak for itself. The Finch also happens to have an open kitchen. When we make food and we share it with people, it's important that they know where it's coming from. If somebody's sitting at this bar and they can see what's going on in the kitchen, or they're sitting at the kitchen counter, there is a direct connection to what the food is about. 
what the restaurant is about, what the space is about, that invites our guests to participate. Instead of tucking it away, making it, you know, this idea of perfect that magically arrives in your table from God knows where. While any restaurant chef knows the importance of cleaning, those that work in a kitchen that's integrated into the dining room understand it on a whole different level. We are always, always, always cleaning. So it's not a, a question about how clean it feels. It, it has to feel clean. It just has to. Whether we're sweeping the floor three times a night or mopping three times a day, like there are things that we're constantly doing to clean the space around us. For me and other home cooks, it's less important to keep the kitchen spotless and ready to go than it is to be able to just manage a mess before sitting down to eat. So I had to get some tips from Chef Gabe. Don't put anything down in the wrong place. Don't leave anything in the sink. When you get finished with a pan, number one, it's easier to clean when something's hot. Or if you're bringing your dishes in, instead of leaving them there, you can just put them straight into the dishwasher. Or you can rinse them off and scrape them and get them ready to go. You don't have to feel like doing the dishes is an end of the meal kind of a thing. And if you do let it become that way, it becomes oppressive. Washing dishes is not that big of a deal. Like You can do it fast and get done with it, but if you leave that plate overnight and you know the coffee cup's next to it, all of those things become a real chore. We don't let it get there. While dealing with the mess as it happens is a good step, there's really so much more that I need to work on. Cleaning as we go is really, really important, but it's not just tucking something away and letting somebody else deal with it after the fact. You know, one of, one of the things is uh, just thinking about mise en place, uh, things in place. We're always trying to put things in their home. You always know where the thing is because you put it away the right way the first time. So when you go to grab it, you know where the olive oil is. You know where the salt is. It's muscle memory at that point. Through talking with Chef Gabe... I realized how much more I could do to make the kitchen work for me and ways that I could minimize the post-meal washing, wiping, and sweeping. But there's something even more important here. Respecting a space goes a long way, and being able to accomplish something delicious in the kitchen starts with making sure that the kitchen is a place that I actually want to be. You have to be pushing on it. You have to be working and mindful of what that next step, the person that's going to follow you into that space, is going to need. And even if that's just you and, you know, you walk back to the sink or you walk back to the kitchen, you know, you see that mess in front of you rather than an opportunity. It's much more exciting to see the opportunity. For our final story this week, Hannah Forden started off by reporting on kitchen hacks, those tools, tricks, and clever tips that make meal prep easy, fun, and delicious. But many of us are like Hannah and find that cooking isn't always about a set recipe or a definitive strategy. Sometimes our kitchen joys are just about taking it one step at a time until you end up with a dish and an experience that is more than the sum of its parts. The other day, I opened my refrigerator door and asked the question, what am I going to make for dinner? There wasn't much in there, and it was one of those hot days when the idea of carrying more than one bag of groceries home felt like an impossible task. And my food budget was dwindling after a sort of decadent weekend, so I popped out for a chicken, rather than doing the easy thing and ordering takeout. There are a few things I always keep in my pantry. Two of those essentials are preserved lemon and a tube of harissa. 
With those two trusty friends and the holy trinity of salt, pepper, and olive oil, I can eat tasty chicken for days. I cook like this a lot. I don't plan much, and I love to play games with myself to see what sort of meals I can throw together with odds and ends left over from past meals and shopping excursions. This past spring, Rana Welsh joined us on HRN's Thursday afternoon show, Happy Hour. Rana runs a cooking school in Brooklyn called Purple Kale Kitchen Works, and she recently published her first cookbook, The Nimble Cook. Rana's philosophy resonated with me because the way she teaches her students is a lot like the way my mom cooked and taught me to approach food growing up. Many of us are taught to cook with a cookbook and a recipe. So we don't necessarily have a really good feel for an ingredient and maybe a particular technique. We just know where that ingredient technique is going to take us in terms of the dish we're going to have. Um, But the other thing is that I don't think we ask the right questions. So we open up our refrigerator and we ask um, not what's edible, but what's for dinner? What kind of dish or plate or meal can I make out of this? And what I tell people is that that's, that's, it's not just asking the wrong question, it's actually asking a question too far in advance. So instead, I tell people to just take one thing and ask what one thing can I do with this one ingredient. There's a special type of agility in the kitchen that is hard to define, but I remember having the realization that I didn't need a recipe to cook a great meal. And how unusual that is. Growing up, I completely took for granted the way that my mother could scrape together a delicious dinner from leftovers and pantry staples. But as an adult, I understand what a leap it is for most home cooks to be able to work without recipes. It's a way to get started. We have, um, all of us, have a moment, a brief moment of paralysis when we open the fridge because we think too much. So I like to tell people that they should open it close their eyes, reach in, grab something, pull it out, pretend someone just gave it to them, and then say, what one thing can I do with you? I rang my mom up the other night. Our usual routine is I call her on my walk home from the subway around 6.30 in the evening, and I always ask, what's for dinner? Holy shit, did I make a mess of this freaking kitchen this evening. During what's been just a crazy, emotionally exhausting year for both my mom and me, Talking about making and preparing food is our safe haven. My mom, Lynn, was brought up in suburban Long Island in the 60s. Is my accent bad? Like many American families during the post-war boom, what people ate was all about convenience, with little regard for tradition, flavor, or seasonality. The recipes on the back of Campbell's soup cans reigned supreme. So I grew up in a household where where eating was not positive or healthy. And so I tried to take another route, um, getting off the path of your your basic meat and potatoes, 1950s and 60s household with a pantry full of canned foods and exploring the, um, the hot topic of the generation of vegetarian food and fresh food. I remember when I was a kid and first becoming a vegetarian, I, hadn't, I didn't have a sandwich. For about six years, I couldn't fathom how one could have a sandwich without meat. Until one day, some brilliant person said, well, you could just put cheese and mustard on the bread. Like a true child of the 60s, my mom defined herself in opposition to mainstream culture. My passion, my interest in cooking was ignited, if you will, 
by uh, the lack thereof in my household. She started off just cooking for herself and testing recipes on her younger brother. There were a lot of baked beans and not a ton of vegetables. After college, various jobs, and a few years working in the family luggage store, she decided to look at her work in the kitchen as something more than day-to-day routine. And then I I was at that place in my life, late 20s, where I just didn't know what I wanted to do. And learning how to cook seemed like a, a really good idea. And so I was able to find a position as an apprentice with a really fabulous French chef. And it was in a private kitchen that she had built in the East Village. And it literally was the two of us in a dishwasher, who was fantastic as well. And it was a really wonderful way to learn some cooking methods and um, continue my interest in a more, more precise way. She learned to cook by observing a classically trained chef work. And fortunately, the woman she trained under was a very patient mentor. In one instance, my mother, who had been a vegetarian for more than a decade at this point, served undercooked chicken at this fancy Manhattan gallery owner's party. The chef took responsibility, warmed up the chicken, and later taught my mom how to tell if meat is finished cooking just by touch. Honestly, I think that's just the most brilliant way to learn anything is through an apprenticeship because I think it benefits everybody. I realize that my own skills as a cook come from the same heritage of apprenticeship. My mother never sat me down and gave me a cooking lesson. Instead, the kitchen has always been our gathering space. It's where we have our most important conversations. We're always laughing, arguing, chopping, and stirring in equal measure. I learned from watching her and from trying what I'd seen out for myself. My mom stopped cooking professionally after I was born. Her intention was to take some time off to focus on being a mom. But early in my life, things changed. She was left to raise me by herself. As a suddenly single mom raising a toddler, she managed to avoid going back to work by taking care of kids from our neighborhood in Brooklyn, and eventually went back to school to get her degree in teaching. Through all of this, each day, she prepared the most beautiful meals you can imagine, often composed of leftovers that a less savvy cook might have discarded. We called them everything but the kitchen sink dinners. Nothing was wasted. I happen to say I do love a good clean-out-the-refrigerator meal. It wasn't easy, but somehow, with all this added stress and long nights with a croup-prone baby, cooking still brought her so much joy. And now, as an adult, I get it. After a long day of being a mom, or being a student, or working, for me, cooking is indeed improv. It's relaxing. Start off by having a glass of wine, um, a funky piece of cheese and a cracker, something to get my inspiration going and my relaxation started. You just sort of stand there and, you know, with your hand on your hip and one leg outstretched, glass of wine in your hand, staring into the refrigerator going, okay, speak to me. So it's like that. It's just um, not worrying, playing. You know, being in the kitchen is very playful. That was my culinary education. And it's only recently that I realized how lucky I am that I can have this sort of fun talking to my refrigerator, imagining flavor combinations, and being unafraid to make mistakes. I love the thrill of the unknown, and I have all my mom's tricks up my sleeve. That's our show. 
But stay tuned after the break for some final Kitchen Joy advice. Special thanks this week to Oscar Simone, Aaliyah Papes, and H. Conley for their reporting. This is also our season finale and the last show for our amazing interns, Oscar, Aaliyah, and Pauline Munch. We want to thank them for their inspired reporting and storytelling. Meet and 3 is produced by Hannah Forden, Katie Mosman-Wadler, and me, Kat Johnson. Our audio engineer is Matt Patterson. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. This program is supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. Meet and 3 is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio. And please stay in touch during our season break. Whether you have a story idea or just want to say hey, write us at ideas at meetn3.nyc. That's all spelled out. Here are Harry Rosenblum, Sara Tangora, and Michael Harlander-Kell, plus an extra bit of wisdom from Rana Welsh. I like to use the lids from deli containers when slicing cherry tomatoes. If you take two of the lids and you invert them and you put cherry tomatoes in the middle, you can take a knife and slide it right across and slice through them. Two deli container lids also makes the perfect thing for forming hamburger patties. You just take a ball of meat, put it between them, smush it down, and there you go. I really look for ways to bulk up, not by making, let's say, a big casserole at the beginning of the week, which then I would freeze for later use or eat throughout the week. Instead, I'll make um, a variety of different ingredients prepared in maybe different ways and then use those interchangeably. Um, to make many more and different dishes with the idea that once something is prepared, that I'm more likely to use it in this very improvisational, impromptu way than I would be if I found it raw staring at me in the, from the produce drawer. Tahini. I use it on so many things from spreading it on toast for breakfast with a little bit of honey. Uh, use it as an addition for sauces as if it were peanut butter. So it's great with Don Don noodles if you've never tried that before. But I also love it in smoothies because it adds this extra level of complexity and nuttiness. I'm here to drop a little tip for all you single gals and guys out there. Um, and it's about pickling. Now, I like to buy lots of stuff from the farmer's market, and then I get home and realize, well, it's just me. What do I do? Not to worry. I throw it in some vinegar and some salt, about a two-to-one ratio of vinegar to water. And I throw my beautiful veggies in there, and then I can nibble at them while I watch Parenthood and cry all year long. Pickle it, people. Pickle it.